You've been transgressed against by being taught these things and by being made to live through role-playing and fearful teaching and fearful stories of end times that have no basis in Scripture. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Colleen Tinker. And I'm Nikki Stevenson. Today, we are discussing fundamental belief number 20, Adventism's most identifying doctrine, the Sabbath. What most Christians don't understand, but which Adventists understand somehow viscerally, if not explicitly, is that the Seventh-day Sabbath is about more than a preferred day of worship. For Adventists, keeping this day holy is the mark, identifying the saved when Jesus returns. It is the seal of God. In Adventist eschatology, the question is never about Jesus. It's always about loyalty to the seventh day. Keeping the seventh day, they say, is evidence that they're loyal to Jesus. In fact, regular Sunday Christians, I say that with scare quotes, will ultimately hear about the Sabbath truth, and when Jesus returns, all who are ready to meet him will be loyal to that seventh day. If any are worshiping on Sunday, they will receive the mark of the beast and be lost. Consequently, going to church on Sunday is perhaps the source of Adventism's greatest fear. What if I get the mark of the beast by entering those doors? This cultic doctrine has its roots not in Scripture, but in Ellen White's story of origins and in her great controversy paradigm. Adventism's false prophet, whom we met in Fundamental Belief Number 18, has married her victims to an idol which presents itself as biblical obedience, but in reality is loyalty to a created thing, a day. But before we talk any more about this doctrine, I want to remind you that we love hearing from you. You can write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. You can go to proclamationmagazine.com and find our online magazines and articles and links to our YouTube channel and also to this podcast. And you can subscribe there to our weekly proclamation email magazine as well. You can donate using the donate tab and please follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And if you love the podcast, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen because it really does help our podcast to expand its reach. And now, Nikki, here comes my inevitable question for you. Okay. When you were an Adventist, how did you view the Sabbath in relationship to salvation? It was everything. I knew that I would one day be tested by the Sabbath. Everything came down to that in my head, the time of trouble, um, what God expects from us, how you identify with the God of the Bible. It was all about the Sabbath. And um, I actually, personally, loved the Sabbath mm-hmm. for a lot of different reasons. I also felt like there was no way, there was no way I could ever go to a Sunday church that I could worship with other Christians. When I was a kid, I went to a children's choir event with a Baptist friend of mine, and I prayed after that and asked God to forgive me for going oh, wow. to that. It was very scary to me. I believed that there was a good chance that I would be alive for the last days. And that I would possibly watch Christians or soldiers torture my children 
trying to get me to give up the Sabbath. I wasn't sure if I'd be strong enough to stand for the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I could never know if I was saved because I didn't know what I was ultimately going to do if I was going to pass that test. Wow. What about you? I felt the same way about that test. I also loved the Sabbath. It's interesting when I hear a lot of Adventists say how much they hated it. And I can't even explain why I loved it, except I think it probably had something to do with the fact that we also had fresh cinnamon rolls that my mom would bake before sundown on Friday, and we'd have the day-old fresh bread because, you know, couldn't eat it warm. (laughs) But um, I did love the Sabbath, and as I got older, I used to say, how do people survive who don't have the Sabbath? I don't have to study when I was in school. Mm -hmm. I don't have to work. I don't, you know, I can just relax on the Sabbath. But I feared that I would not be able to stand for it under persecution, Mm -hmm. and I believed I had to. It was the final test. It was the seal of God. Or as the more progressive Adventists started saying as I was in my adult, my 20s and 30s, it's the sign of the seal. The fact that you keep the Sabbath means you have the seal of God. So it was all very much dependent upon my observance and my faithfulness to obey that fourth commandment. And that would be the mark of whether I'd make it to heaven, ultimately. And that seal could come and go. Because if you're going to leave the Sabbath, right? Mm -hmm. If if you give up the Sabbath, then you receive the mark of the beast. I guess so. I didn't think it through that carefully. Could Mm -hmm. I lose the seal of God? Because keeping the Sabbath was a sign that I had it. So I guess I could have lost it. I, I never thought through whether I could regain it. Probably a little like the baptism thing. If I realized I had been sinning, I could ask forgiveness and get it back. And you know what? I really did live with a lot of guilt at the same time I had this feeling because, as I mentioned before, I was not always careful with the edges of the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. And I can remember many times when I was finishing washing the floor after sundown, causing Richard untold distress. (laughs) You know, I would justify it in my mind. Well, it's the Sabbath. God wants us to be ready. He wants us to meet Him to give our best. And then I would lie in bed and just beg Him to forgive me for having washed the floors after sundown. So, it was a kind of a vicious cycle And I'd have to believe he would forgive me, and I'd come to the point in my head where I thought I had confessed sufficiently, and I'd have to go on. So it was a source of anxiety all the time, and I believed I had to keep it, and yet I loved it. Talk about a strange, abusive relationship. (laughs) Yes, that's a good way to put it. That was how I experienced it, too. There was definitely a love-hate aspect to it. I remember thinking that Christians who didn't have the Sabbath message were so lucky because they would only be judged based on what they know. And it wasn't that I wanted to go out and go to the movies on Saturday. It was that last day test. My salvation depended on this. Yes, Would I be able to withstand it when the soldiers and the Christians were coming after me, hunting to kill me, like Ellen White said they'd be given permission to do when the Sunday law was passed? Mm -hmm. I figured I would ultimately have to be willing to give up my life for the sake of keeping the Sabbath. And isn't it interesting from this perspective, Nikki? It was never, will I die for Jesus? Mm-mm. It was always the Sabbath. But the Sabbath, in a sense, was Jesus. That's what lined us up with Him somehow. I remember when I came to understand the biblical teaching on the Sabbath, it was this really embarrassing moment like, oh, right, God's not completely hung up on a day. It's kind of bigger than that. It's yeah. about His Son. 
Right. And when I finally had the aha that the law, including the Sabbath, was not the eternal reality that even Jesus was subject to. Mm-hmm. No, he was the eternal one. He created the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. It had no power over him. Mm-hmm. He determined what was done with it. Mm-hmm. So, let's read this doctrine. This has been a hard chapter. Not hard in seeing through the air. Right. Hard in seeing that we ever believed it, I think. I think That's so. That's been hard. Mm-hmm. Okay, so fundamental belief number 20, the Sabbath. The gracious creator, after the six days of creation, rested on the seventh day and instituted the Sabbath for all people as a memorial of creation. The fourth commandment of God's unchangeable law requires the observance of the seventh-day Sabbath as the day of rest, worship, and ministry in harmony with the teaching and practice of Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day of delightful communion with God and one another. It is a symbol of our redemption in Christ, a sign of our sanctification, a token of our allegiance, and a foretaste of our eternal future in God's kingdom. The Sabbath is God's perpetual sign of His eternal covenant between Him and His people. Joyful observance of this holy time from evening to evening, sunset to sunset, is a celebration of God's creative and redemptive acts. And I can just hear the families gathered singing, Day is dying in the West. (laughs) Okay, Nikki, looking at this fundamental belief, what jumps out at you? Anything? I I, I personally had a hard time finding any part of it that didn't make me just roll my eyes. Yeah. How about you? What jumps out at you? Well, I have the same reaction. The idea that God instituted the Sabbath for all people as a memorial of creation comes completely out of the mind of Ellen White or whoever it was she was listening Mm -hmm. to and being influenced by, because that is not found in Scripture. Nowhere. And I just want to say, relative to that, no matter what Adventists say and the way they make their arguments, the way this book makes its arguments, the word Sabbath is not in Genesis. It says God sanctified the seventh day, but it does not ever say Sabbath, that title Sabbath that's given to this day in the commandment. That's interesting. It's not in Genesis. What else? Well, it's interesting, too, that they refer to God's law as unchangeable. This is, again, their picture of this immutable, deified Decalogue. Right. So, they say the fourth commandment of God's unchangeable law requires the observance of the seventh-day Sabbath as a day of rest. Worship, which I don't read in the commandment, and ministry, which I also don't read in the commandment, but then they say this is in harmony with the teaching and practice of Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, which again is a twisting of scripture when you exactly. understand how they mean that. Jesus saying he's the Lord of the Sabbath means he's above it, he's over it. Yeah. When they say he's the Lord of the Sabbath, they say that's the Lord you're worshiping when you worship the Sabbath. If you worship a different day, you're worshiping a different Lord. Yes. And and it's kind of in this sense Jesus being Lord of the Sabbath from an Adventist perspective is a little like the queen being the monarch of England. England is much bigger than the queen. Mm-hmm. But she's kind of appointed to keep it all together and be the figurehead. That's how I saw Jesus being Lord of the Sabbath. It was a shock to me when I finally saw that it was upside down, that Jesus is over the Sabbath. He created the Sabbath. He has the power to tell us who he is and how the Sabbath represents him. It does not have power over him. Well, they say that the Sabbath is a sign of our sanctification, and I, I'd really like to know where they get that from. I don't feel like they <laughs> yes. give a very good account 
for where that idea came from. No. Our sign of our sanctification is how we change and grow more in the likeness of Christ. It's our fruit. Jesus right. said, you'll know them by their fruit. So I'm not entirely sure how they get there with this. It's Owen. And it completely dismisses Romans 14 because yes. Romans 14 says one man regards one day as holy. Another says they're all the same. Let each be convinced in their own mind. Well, wait a minute. Who's being sanctified? The one that keeps or the one that doesn't keep? Or is it unrelated to either? Right. It also says it's a token of our allegiance and a foretaste of our eternal future in God's kingdom. <laughs> so in God's kingdom, we're all locked in our tents. <laughs> <laughs> The Sabbath, it says, is God's perpetual sign of His eternal covenant between Him and His people. Well, what's wrong with that? It's wrong. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) There's no eternal covenant of which Sabbath is the sign. What was the covenant of which Sabbath was the sign? The Mosaic Covenant. Exactly. And you know, I just want to insert here... If you haven't listened to our earlier podcasts on the biblical covenants, after you listen to this, go back and do that. Podcasts number 29, 31, and 33 tell about the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the transition to the new covenant. Covenants are the framework by which we must understand the Sabbath. The Sabbath is not eternal. God did not give an eternal covenant which contains the Ten Commandments. All of that, all of those commandments are inside the Mosaic Covenant, which was temporary, Galatians 3. So, understanding the covenants is paramount to understanding the Sabbath, but because this fundamental belief is about the Sabbath, we're not going to rehash the covenants, but I will recommend that you go back and listen to those podcasts because it's really necessary to understand that they are not telling you the truth when they say the Sabbath is an eternal sign of God's eternal covenant. Yeah, I remember thinking, it's so clear, guys, it's the fourth commandment, read your Bible. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we're supposed to keep the Sabbath. If you are thinking that as you listen to this, those covenants Colleen's talking about are really important for you to go and listen to and get clear on because it helps you know how to read the Bible. That's right. So, go back to podcasts 29, 31, and 33. And then, I just have to comment on this last sentence of this fundamental belief, joyful observance of this holy time from evening to evening, sentence to sunset, is a celebration of God's creative and redemptive acts. What reaction do you have when you read that, Nikki? I have two reactions. I remember feeling that way. Mm -hmm. I remember feeling between Friday sundown and Saturday sundown so blessed to be able to take the time to notice the beautiful day and to be with family and to thank the Lord for whatever I thought He did, because I didn't think I was saved. Mm-hmm. I felt pretty special to be yeah. a part of that. But now when I look at it and I see this reference to a holy time, I get pretty irritated. Yeah. <laughs> I get pretty upset. One of the things that I remember learning from you um, was that this, our faith, Christianity, is something that can be lived any circumstance, no matter what's going on around you, no matter where you are, we don't have to go to a temple. We don't have to go and sacrifice animals. We're not mandated to, you know, travel to the Vatican or to Mecca or whatever. We can be a Christian wherever we are, no matter what time or day it is. 
you can't take that away from us. Right. We are God's people and we worship him always. That's right. There is no more holy time right. that binds us. And then you get to thinking further about that. And what about those poor people in the North? Right. <laughs> no kidding. What on earth? I mean, can you imagine what it must be like to be an Adventist and to live there where the sun is gone all winter? And then never sets in the summer. <laughs> it's just, it, it really does break down. It does. When you think about it. And you know, someone did ask Ellen White about that. They said, what about in those regions where the sun is up all day or down all, you know, down all day, depending on the season? And she didn't really have a good answer. Do you know what her answer essentially was? What? There are better places to live. Oh, <laughs> Okay. I guess you couldn't answer me for her, but I wonder if she would think it was a sin to live there. I don't know what she would have said, but she could not answer how to keep the Sabbath in those regions. And what do you do when you, nowadays, when you fly? I remember flying to Fiji and I think we flew right through Sabbath. Like we left on one day and the next day was two days later. Like when we landed, I don't know how to explain, but the time changed, you know, it was was so weird. We just completely skipped Sabbath. We went from Friday morning to Sunday. Yes, there are just situations that we have in our modern world that Ellen White didn't have, and somehow her prophetic vision did not cover them. So let's look at how this book deals with this fundamental belief, which, by the way, with all of these unanswered questions, even at this point, when we think about the implications of living in this round world with seasons, even with that, this doctrine is considered the thing that sets apart the saved. And I just cannot overstate that. It's so interesting to me because while the chapter does make that point, it doesn't go into the detail and into the terrifying reality of the way it's actually taught to members. This is the core doctrine. When we go back to that analogy of Ellen White being the crocodile or the alligator that snatches us when we reach out to her and she drags us into that pool and we never come back, this is the claw of that alligator that pins us to the bottom of that pool so that even if the others loosen, that one stays tight. This is the doctrine that holds Adventists and it causes the greatest problem when people begin to question. This is the core. It's, but what about the Sabbath? Yes. And it's never, but what about Jesus? They'll say, but what are you going to do about the Sabbath? So, as we walk through this, this chapter begins with how Sabbath supposedly began at the beginning of creation. They have a quote from J.N. Andrews, for whom the Adventist Seminary in Michigan has been named at Andrews University. He says in there, the Sabbath, therefore, lies at the very foundation of divine worship, for it teaches this great truth in the most impressive manner, and no other institution does this. The Sabbath lies at the foundation of divine worship. Think of that. That replaces God. God is the center and the focus of worship, never the Sabbath. That's not taught in Scripture. And when you think about what Jesus said to the woman at the well, he said that true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. If their foundation of worship is related to the day they worship on, that's not truth. That's right. And that's not true worship as Jesus defines it. It's a very good point. 
So when we come to the next section where it talks about the Sabbath at creation, Nikki, there were three points here that the authors tried to make and explain. What stands out to you in their arguments about the Sabbath at creation? Well, this is where they like to say that it was given to all of humanity because he created it at creation. I remember going to a wedding and hearing God created two things in the garden, marriage and the Sabbath. Creation ordinances. Yeah. They have a quote here that says, if God finished the creation on the sixth day, what does scripture mean when it says that he ended his work on the seventh day? (laughs) God had finished the creation of the heavens and the earth in those six days, but he had yet to make the Sabbath. It was by resting on the Sabbath that he made it. And I want to say, wait a minute, I thought you couldn't separate the Decalogue. I thought that they came as a package, all 10. Right. They, they tell us, you can't go to church on Sunday. You can't just get rid of one of the commandments. And at the same time, they say the Decalogue is eternal, that yeah. it existed in heaven, that it had something to do with Satan's great rebellion against God. God's law wasn't fair. But now they have one of their 10 being created on the seventh day. It's doublespeak. Mm-hmm. It's inconsistent. Plus... Notice the illogic of what they're saying. He finished his creation in six days. He finished, but he hadn't made the Sabbath, and he made it by resting. The Sabbath was his finishing touch, ending his work. That's a twist of what the Bible says. Mm -hmm. The Bible uses the Hebrew word that means ceased. On the seventh day, he ceased his work. And he declared it very good, and he sanctified it and blessed it. It wasn't the time frame that he blessed. It was the finished work of creation. And if we go back and look at the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2, we'll notice a pattern in the language, and it's extremely important to notice that the grammar gives us a clue into what's actually being said. It says at the end of every day of creation, it says, and the evening and the morning were the... First, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth days. When it came to the seventh day, when God ceased, it does not say the evening and the morning were the seventh day. There is no boundary to that seventh day. It just says that on the seventh day, God ceased his work that he had made and rested on the seventh day and sanctified it. There's no end or beginning to that seventh day. God finished his work. That finished work, he declared, very good. And I want to say, it's foreshadowing what happened thousands of years later as Jesus hung on that cross and said, it is finished. Mm -hmm. It was God's finished work that was blessed and sanctified. And then when sin came, the work of redemption began, and Jesus finished that on the cross. So, just saying, they are twisting the words of Scripture to try to make an argument And if you don't know the language of the Bible, if you're not sure what it says, it can deceive people. Yeah, it's a snare. Then, when it talks about God sanctifying the Sabbath, it's interesting that they use speculative language. The fact that God sanctified the seventh day means that this day is holy, that he set it apart for the lofty purpose of enriching the divine-human relationship. Where does that come from in Scripture? It doesn't. It's in Ellen. What kind of relationship did God have with Adam and Eve when he created them? A perfect relationship. They were not unreconciled. They were one. They had the life of God in them. 
they communed with God. This is saying that Sabbath was given at creation to enhance, to enrich the divine human relationship. No, no day can do that. And God never gave it for that. He didn't give it to Adam and Eve. Mm -mm. There was no command for them to keep the Sabbath. There was no mention of Sabbath. Yeah, they treat it like it was prescriptive for all humanity at creation. And you will not find that in scripture. No, you will not. So then they begin to walk through biblical history and they try to show that the Sabbath was a part of human history from the beginning all the way through. And when they talk about the Jews in Egypt, they say, oh, it was too hard to keep the Sabbath there because they were slaves. And so they had kind of just forgotten about it. Because, of course, the implication is that before then they were keeping the Sabbath. And then they go on and talk about how after God pulled them out of Egypt, he began to remind them of the Sabbath. And before he gave them the command to keep the Sabbath, he kind of gave them a practice run with the manna. (laughs) That's a really good way to put it. That whole manna story has been so misused by the Adventists. This book actually articulates the way I learned it, and that is that God gave them the manna along with the Sabbath, which tells you, they say, that the Sabbath was always there, but he's now asking Israel to remember how to do it. And he gave them the manna to help them know how to do it. He would give them a double portion on Friday, the preparation day, and then he would give them none on Sabbath. So they had to gather a double portion and he would miraculously keep it for them for the Sabbath so they would know that the Sabbath was holy and this is how they were to keep it. No, no, no. Yes, he did give them a double portion, but that's not why. This is about symbols. God gave Israel the manna as a symbol of the bread of life. And we go fast forwarding to John 6, where we see Jesus feeding the 5,000, giving them bread from heaven. And they, the Jews, think, maybe this is the prophet Moses said would come. Because the Jews had a tradition that they believed that whenever that prophet Moses said would come, that when he came, he would give them bread from heaven like Moses was associated with the manna. And Jesus is saying, oh, but I am the bread from heaven. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. So, the manna was a figure of Jesus, the bread of life, and the Sabbath was giving them the sign of rest in Christ. He was showing Israel that he was giving them their nourishment, giving them their sustenance, giving them what they needed to live. And not only that, they did not have to work in order to be sustained. One in seven, they would sit and not gather, and he would miraculously sustain what they had done before. He would give them the bread of life He would give them rest from himself. This was about God's provision. This was a symbol of Jesus. Mm -hmm. You know, you had mentioned they didn't have to work on that one day. And I would press that a little further and say more than that, they weren't allowed to work. And I think that there's a shadow in that too, that whenever we hold on to these little spare tire doctrines, I know a lot of former Adventists will do this. They'll keep the Sabbath just in case you're doing work for your salvation. This whole picture of the manna of collecting for six days and then not being allowed to on the seventh day, it's an act of obedience to not go out and collect your manna. It's an act of trust 
to believe that God will provide this, what you need, he will provide this for you. And as they're wandering in the desert and they know you've got to get your food every day or you're not going to eat, that's a big ask. It, that's it's true. about their object of their faith. Yeah. And the same is true for us. Where do we place our faith? Is it in our traditions? Is it in how well we obey? Or is it in the God who provides and who tells us, I've got this? Believe me. That's such a great point, Nikki. And then from creation and the manna, we move into God giving the law, the Sabbath in the law. What were your thoughts about this, Nikki? It's always frustrating because there's more in the chapter than we ever have time to cover. But it was interesting to read their point on remember the Sabbath. The fact that it says remember means that it must have pre-existed. And I immediately thought, how often do I have to remind my teenager of things that I want him to be sure he does? Remember your jacket. It's cold today. It, It can be a command without being... I don't know how to explain it. Well, it's like you said to me earlier, it doesn't mean recollect or recall. It means don't forget that this is something that is coming up that you need to do. This is one of current Adventism's biggest arguments, at least that I hear. Well, why did God say remember if it hadn't been done before? You can't remember something that you didn't previously know. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. You can. Mm-hmm. If you get a new medication from your doctor, exactly. you can you can remember to take your, your first pill on time. Remember to take that pill. Remember the school's starting tomorrow. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean that this is something that obviously happened. They play with words. Yes, they do. That's what's been so frustrating about working through the chapter. Not the I difficulty agree. of exposing it, but the frustration of seeing what they do with it. I totally agree. Another thing that really bothered me when it talked about God giving the Sabbath in the law, it says that the fourth commandment defines the time for rest and worship, directing us to contemplate God and His work. No, the Bible never set a time for worship. The fourth commandment had nothing to do with worship. And Adventists all will say, you know, going to church on Sabbath is the sign that we have the seal of God. Going to church on Sunday or worshiping on Sunday, or they will even call it Sunday worship, is the sign that we will, if we don't change our minds, get the mark of the beast. The thing of it is, the fourth commandment was never about worship. It was about resting. They were not to do anything. Well, and they weren't supposed to even let their animals work. How are your animals going to worship? You can't command worship from animals. It was about ceasing from work. That's right. I found it was interesting that they said that Sabbath observance is an antidote for idolatry. And I will tell you, Sabbath was my idol as an Adventist. Me too. It was my idol. They go on and talk about the fact that the Sabbath, according to their interpretation, is the seal of God and that it is the only commandment in the Decalogue that identifies God. That really makes me mad today. Until I heard Gary, our pastor, preaching through this section of the Bible um, some years ago, I didn't even realize that Exodus 20 verses 1 and 2 are part of the Ten Commandments. I always learned that the first commandment was, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And Gary said, The beginning of the Ten Commandments began with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. And the very beginning, the prologue of the Ten Commandments identifies 
the Lord, identifies him as the sovereign over Israel. The God whom they are to worship, every single commandment is tied to that prologue, that identification of God. For Adventists to say the fourth commandment is the only one that gives the name of God and identifies the sovereign is a lie because that prologue is part of the Ten Commandments. It also says in this book that although human beings require physical rest to refresh their bodies, God bases his command that we rest on the Sabbath on his example. So now they're saying that God commanded Israel, and by their explanation, all of humanity to keep the Sabbath because he kept the Sabbath. He created the world and then rested. His example, God's example, can you believe that? We don't follow God's example. Yeah, the the what would Jesus do model. You know, we can't heal people. We can't walk on water. We can't exactly. follow his example. He was more than that. He's our sovereign. He's our creator. We can't follow his example. And Sabbath isn't about following his example. God didn't keep the Sabbath. In Genesis, God rested from his work. That's not an example for us. And you know, I'm saying for us as if it has something to do with me. This was for Israel. This was Israel's constitution, the covenant that God made with Israel that had a beginning and an end, 430 years after Abraham until the seed. Galatians 3. We don't have time to explore that further, but go back and listen to podcast number 31. The Mosaic Covenant was temporary and conditional, and it's not for us in the church today because Jesus came and fulfilled every shadow of that law. You know, Colleen, last week when we talked about the law of God, we talked about how that law is written on the hearts, and that can't possibly mean the Decalogue because right. the Sabbath is not written on the heart. And that was a point of confusion for you, you shared, yeah. when you were an Adventist. And they make this comment in this chapter that I thought was pretty interesting. They talk about Sabbath keeping as a sign of righteousness by faith, and they said, Christians recognize that through the guidance of an enlightened conscience, non-Christians who honestly search for truth can be led by the Holy Spirit to an understanding of the general principles of God's law. And they cite Romans 2, 14 to 16. And they say, this explains why the nine commandments, other than the fourth, have been to a degree practiced outside of Christianity. But this is not the case with the Sabbath commandment. They acknowledge. They acknowledge that that is not written on the conscience or written on the heart. It has to be taught by the remnant church. Isn't that interesting that they would actually admit that when it contradicts what the New Testament says about the law of God in believers? I think it's also interesting, and this is an argument that Adventism has always used, that the other Sabbaths, the yearly feasts, the new moons, those were ritual Sabbaths, but the seventh-day Sabbath is not a ritual. It's a moral law because it's stuck in the middle of the Ten Commandments. Well, that argument has flaws for several reasons, one of which is the Sabbath 
typical of all Near Eastern Hittite covenants of that day, had the symbol of the covenant written in to the law that the suzerain king and the vassal king made in agreement with each other. When the suzerain took management over the conquered king, there was always a sign written into the covenant that the vassal king would agree to keep. The Sabbath is positioned in the Mosaic covenant in the middle of the ten in exactly the same way as those other secular covenants were done. The Sabbath was the sign, and it says this in Exodus 31, that God gave Israel to keep as long as there was a nation. And it was the sign that they accepted the covenant that he had given them. So, number one, you can't argue that it wasn't a ritual when it was a sign stuck in the middle of the covenant. It was a ritual. It was a sign. And here's the thing that I don't think most people understand who are Adventists. I didn't. The chapter Leviticus 23 lists every single ritual Sabbath that God gave Israel and explains what it's for and how to keep it or, or what, what sacrifices are required and when they're supposed to be observed. The first Sabbath, ritual Sabbath listed in Leviticus 23 is the seventh day the weekly Sabbath. And it goes on to explain the new moons and Pentecost and Passover and all of the ritual feasts. So, you cannot argue that the seventh-day Sabbath is not a ritual Sabbath. In John 5, we have that story of Jesus healing the crippled man at the pool of Bethesda. And he arouses the extreme rage of the Pharisees because, it says, he not only broke the Sabbath, but he was calling himself God. Now, what did Jesus do when he healed that man? What made the Pharisees so angry about that? He told the man to pick up his bed and, and walk. He told him to break the Sabbath. Now, how do we know that was an actual command that was breaking the Sabbath? Well, it's a command in the Old Testament. Yes. In fact, I'll just briefly outline the commands that people were not to perform on the Sabbath. Now, I'm getting this list from Dale's book, Sabbath in Christ, and it's from page 67. He has compiled, very conveniently for us, <laughs> the list of the things the Old Testament said not to do on the Sabbath with the texts that go with them. Now, the first one, which most Adventists don't think of, is do not go out of your place. He commanded the Israelites in Exodus 16.29 to remain in their place every seventh day. He never asked them to get up and go to the temple and worship. He never asked them to get together and, you know, the synagogue, for example, was not part of the law. That came much later, after the exile, after the return to the land, between the Testaments when there was no word from God. Jews started meeting every seventh day to discuss the law. That was not part of the law. The first command is that they're not to leave their place. They were not to bake or boil, not to do any work. All of this is from Exodus. They were not to build a fire, Exodus 35. They were not to carry a load. And that is found in Jeremiah 17 and Nehemiah 1. Jesus asked that man at the pool to get up and carry his mat that he had lived on for years. All of his earthly possessions were in that mat. And he asked him to get up and carry it on the Sabbath and walk. Do not buy or sell on the Sabbath. Do not do your own pleasure. And then the things that they were to do on the Sabbath, keep it holy, 
rest, observe or celebrate, delight in the Lord, convocate. Now you say, if they were to stay in their own places, how are they to convocate? Well, in Leviticus 23, 3, it says, for six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, a holy convocation. You shall not do any work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwellings. Now, the law did command the priests to do certain things on the Sabbath. They had to set out the showbread for the week. They had to keep the lights burning. They, there were certain sacrifices. But Jesus even addressed that fact. He even addressed that the law commanded the priests to work on the Sabbath, to profane the Sabbath, he said in Matthew 12. And yet they're blameless because the command for the priests to intercede for the people was a command in the law that superseded the holiness of the day. For Adventists to say that the Sabbath is about worship and it's the symbol of divine worship and it's the core of divine worship is just not in Scripture. The Sabbath was never about worship. It was about staying in their places, observing God, letting Him provide. And then Jesus comes along and heals this man who's not asking to be healed. And He asks him to pick up his bed and walk. He was breaking the Sabbath. It wasn't just a rabbinical law. He did. But He declared Himself to be the Son of God. And the priests knew He was declaring Himself to be the Messiah. He was revealing who He was, and it enraged them. And he could break the Sabbath, the technicalities of the legal requirements, because he was God. Because he had the authority to say, I have come. That shadow pointed to me, and here I am showing you that it's me. The substance. The substance. Mm -hmm. You know, this book says, actually, I believe they're quoting Ellen White. It says, those who observe Sabbath as a memorial of creation would be doing so as a grateful acknowledgement that God was their creator, this is Ellen White, their rightful sovereign, that they were the works of his hands and the subject of his authority. Thus, the institution was wholly commemorative and given to all mankind. There was nothing in it shadowy Mm. or of restricted application to any people. The weekly Sabbath did not foreshadow Christ in Adventism. So Christ doesn't fulfill the ceasing from your work for salvation. Exactly. Their Jesus doesn't complete anything. Right. Their Jesus demands that you do do works in order to get or remain saved. So Colossians 2.16 in their head has to be about something else. It's just not compatible. Their Jesus could have sinned. Their Jesus could have failed. Their Jesus inherited Mary's sinful genes. Their Jesus had to keep the law and show us we can too. He had no advantage we don't have. So their Jesus couldn't have become a substance of a shadow. He was just a glorified human. He was just like we are. So their Sabbath is bigger than their Jesus. But Jesus, the real one, is the creator of Sabbath. He gets to decide what it is, and He is the reality that day pointed to. So we see this about Jesus. Let's talk about the apostles. Why do we see the apostles going to the synagogue on the Sabbath? They make a big deal about this. Yes, they do. Paul went to the synagogue as his custom was. Every city he went to, he went to the synagogue. Well, let me just say this. 
As we mentioned, the synagogue was not part of the law. The synagogue was a Jewish tradition that grew up in the intertestamental period when there was no word from God for 400 years except for their written prophecies and the Torah and the Psalms. That's not to say it was a wrong thing to do, and those Jews that went to the synagogue were keeping the Sabbath. But Paul, who was a believing Jew, went to the synagogue in every city he went not to worship as Adventists think of worship. He went to teach. He went to teach and he was showing those Jews that Jesus had come and had fulfilled the prophecies of the Messiah. He had died for their sins. He had been buried. He had been raised on the third day. And in every case, he preached for a limited amount of time. Sometimes it was a couple of days. Sometimes it was a few weeks. Finally, in every case, the Jews would throw him out. They were so enraged at what he was saying about Jesus that they threw him out of the synagogue. But he would continue teaching in other places. And it's interesting that in Acts 19, it tells about him being thrown out. And it says, after he was thrown out, he went into the hall of Tyrannus, which was a local Gentile gathering place. And he taught every day for months. That's every day. (laughs) That includes the Sabbaths. So when he was thrown out of the synagogue, he just continued what he was doing in another venue. Mm -hmm. He didn't keep the Sabbath in the way the Jews did. He went there to teach them about Jesus. That's where they were gathered. That's where his people were. And the gospel goes to the Jew first and then the Gentile. That's right. And that's what Paul said in Romans 9. He always preached to the Jews first. Now, this was a little bit hard for me when I was first leaving Adventism and reading through the New Testament. Every time I saw that they were doing something on the Sabbath, I'd get tense and I would text someone. Uh Look at this verse. It says Jesus was there or it says Paul was there. And it became really important to me to write down and remember the difference between descriptive passages of Scripture and prescriptive passages of Scripture. These are historical events. We're hearing about Paul going to the synagogue on the Sabbath because Paul went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. (laughs) Yes. This is not, now you go to the synagogue on the Sabbath unless it says it, and it doesn't anywhere. No. No, and quite the opposite. In Acts 15, we learn what was required of Jewish believers, and it did not include the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. In the book of Galatians, we learn that Jesus has fulfilled all of the shadows of the Old Covenant, and that to go back to any part of the law after you have received the gospel is to go back into something that has nothing more than the elemental spirits of paganism and Paul says in Galatians 5.4 that you fall from grace if you go back to the law, and that includes the Sabbath. Now, I know that we do look at historical patterns in Scripture, but the pattern of the New Testament church was to gather on the first day of the week. It was the pattern. In spite of everything Adventism tries to say about the Catholics being responsible for this. But I just want to say another thing, too, that this book makes a really big deal about that was a very hard thing for me as I was starting to question the Sabbath. They call it a sign of loyalty. And they say, every human being's loyalty to God will be tested by the Sabbath command placed in the midst of the Decalogue. Well, Nikki, there's no place in Scripture this is ever stated. This is entirely from Ellen. Mm -hmm. And I realized one day, I was still Adventist, and Richard and I were 
teaching a Sabbath school class and the the subject in the quarterly was the Sabbath. And I didn't know how to teach it because I knew I couldn't teach it like I'd learned it, but I still didn't understand what it really meant. And even though I was still Adventist, I was having a lot of dissonance. And I was praying about how to approach this, and I was thinking about what it meant for the Israelites to have the Sabbath. And I realized that the Sabbath was never a test for Israel. It was always called a sign. It was a sign for Israel. And they were to stay in their tents one day in seven. They were not to work, and it didn't matter how urgent the situation was. It didn't matter if a thunderstorm was threatening their crops. It didn't matter what the deal was. They were to stay in their tents and God would take care of them so that ultimately they would prosper if they honored God and kept his Sabbath. They would prosper not just spiritually, but fiscally in ways the surrounding nations would not prosper. They would have better crops, better flocks, and nobody, not even they themselves, could ever claim that it came from their working better and harder than the surrounding nations who worked seven out of seven. It could only be said that their God did it for them. That is such a huge act of trust. Yes. To have to sit there, huddled around your family, listening to those storms, yeah, and trusting God with that. That's what the Sabbath was to Israel. It was not a test. It is not ever a test. It was a shadow of Christ, Colossians 2, 16 and 17 says. And for Israel, it was a sign that their God was keeping his covenant with them. If they sat in their tents and rested, he would work for them. And he told them that the Sabbath was a sign that it is he who sanctifies. And we see that in Hebrews. Yes. We cease from our works. It is God who does so. When we read about a sign of sanctification, listen to what Ellen White says. The power that created all things is the power that recreated the soul in his own likeness. To those who keep holy the Sabbath day, it is the sign of sanctification. True sanctification is harmony with God's oneness with him in character. It is received through obedience to those principles that are the transcript of his character. And the Sabbath is the sign of obedience. He who from the heart obeys the fourth commandment will obey the whole law. He is sanctified through obedience. Sanctified through obedience and God clearly said that the Sabbath was so that the Jews would know that it is he who sanctifies. It was an act of trust. And Paul tells us, as you were saved, so walk in the Lord. We are sanctified by the Lord. He makes us alive when we trust the gospel of our salvation. He indwells us with his Holy Spirit. He puts himself in us. He, the author of the law, indwells us and gives us a new heart, a new spirit, and his spirit. Our sanctification has nothing to do with the law. It's a righteousness apart from the law that we receive from him, a righteousness which the law and the prophets testified to but did not possess in themselves. That's that's Romans 3, 20 and 21. They spent a good deal of time in here talking again about the Catholics and how they changed the Sabbath and that the Sabbath is not on Sunday and that Sunday keepers are deceived in a part of apostate Protestantism. And I think we could just zoom right past that mm-hmm. because it's none of it's accurate. Right. And I want to make very clear to people listening, I do not believe that Sunday is the Sabbath. I don't either. And I do not 
call myself or consider myself a Sunday keeper. Nope. I worship the God of scripture. I worship the Lord Jesus and his people gather on Sundays. So that's where I go. That's when I go. And I love Sundays. Yes. But it's not holy time. No, it is not. Romans 14 makes it very clear that we can choose if we honor a day or not. But I have to say that for myself, as a former Adventist, I had to give up the Seventh-day Sabbath because it was part of my salvation package as an Adventist. Yeah. It was an idol to me. Mm-hmm. And as an idol, I have to completely give it up because Jesus is my Sabbath rest, <laughs> Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. In Him is rest. Come unto me, and I will give you rest. It is not related to a day. And the only other thing I would say about that section on Catholicism is that much of what they accuse the Catholics of, they themselves do. They have an authority that is superior and above Scripture. Yes. They have probation and confession. They have all kinds of beliefs and teachings that mimic Catholicism. And it's so interesting. I've heard people say that it's so interesting that the Catholic idea of purgatory is a variation on the Adventist idea of the investigative judgment, where believers, so-called, are on probation, waiting until a time that Jesus is done investigating their lives to see what's been forgiven and what's been confessed and what's been covered by the blood. It's it's fascinating because both Catholicism and Adventism teach that once you accept Jesus, you have a clean slate from your past, but you have to go on into the future keeping yourself saved by doing good works or by doing sacraments or by doing things that are a means of grace and by continual confession, because if you don't confess every sin, that sin will be held against you. That's not the biblical gospel, and both Adventism and Catholicism have a version of that. And Adventism needs this because it holds their story of origins together. It holds their face-saving doctrine of the investigative judgment together. It's supporting the false religion of Adventism, and it's going to culminate for them in being the remnant church of Revelation. And just in case you're wondering why Sabbath is so important when it is so clearly not a New Testament doctrine... All I can say is because Ellen, and she made it very clear that the Sabbath is the final test. I have two quotes here that I have to read from her. They're both from the Great Controversy. The first one is from page 640, and the second one will be from page 605. And she says, The enemies of God's law, from ministers down to the least among them, have a new conception of truth and duty. Too late they see that the Sabbath of the fourth commandment is the seal of the living God. Nikki, who, what is the seal of God? The Holy Spirit. Too late they see the true nature of their spurious Sabbath and the sandy foundation upon which they've been building. They find that they've been fighting against God. Religious teachers have led souls to perdition while professing to guide them to the gates of paradise. Not until the day of final accounts will it be known how great is the responsibility of men in holy office and how terrible are the results of their unfaithfulness. Only in eternity can we rightly estimate the loss of a single soul. The voice of God is heard from heaven declaring the day and hour of Jesus' coming and delivering the everlasting covenant to his people. 
Like peals of loudest thunder, his words roll through the earth. The Israel of God stand listening with their eyes fixed upward. Their countenances are lighted up with his glory and shine as did the face of Moses when he came down from Sinai. The wicked cannot look upon them. And when the blessing is pronounced on those who have honored God by keeping his Sabbath holy, there is a mighty shout of victory. Nikki, there is not one mention of Jesus. Mm -mm. The people who are saved in Adventist paradigm, in Ellen White's scenario, are those who keep Sabbath. Mm -hmm. And then this is the last one, which isn't quite as long. The Sabbath will be the great test of loyalty, for it is the point of truth especially controverted. When the final test shall be brought to bear upon men, then the line of distinction will be drawn between those who serve God and those who serve Him not. While the observance of the false Sabbath in compliance with the law of the state, contrary to the fourth commandment, will be an avowal of allegiance to a power that is in opposition to God, the keeping of the true Sabbath in obedience to God's law is an evidence of loyalty to the Creator. While one class, by accepting the sign of submission to earthly powers, receive the mark of the beast, the other, choosing the token of allegiance to divine authority, receive the seal of God. And there you have it. And that has led to untold misery. It has. It's the springboard for all of the religious abuse and spiritual and emotional trauma that happens in Adventism. One thing that I thought was interesting about this chapter, of all the chapters, this chapter should have been the one that talked about how Sabbath keepers will one day be hunted and killed by Christians for keeping the Sabbath. And the worst offenders will be those of us who have left. They don't mention it in here. They allude to it, but they don't mention it. They say that in delivering the three angels' message, that that will precipitate a conflict that will involve the whole world. So if you're an Adventist, you know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. The central issue will be obedience to God's law and the observance of the Sabbath. In the face of this conflict, everyone must decide whether to keep God's commandments or those of humans. This message will produce a people who keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. Those who reject it will eventually receive the mark of the beast. They talk about magnifying God's law and how they need to be a consistent example of Sabbath keeping. This made me think of Mary Kay McLeod's book, Now, that little pamphlet that she wrote when she was in Academy. And I happened to have it and I pulled it out and I read through some of it. And all I could see in the story was mental illness, yes, delusional thinking, paranoia, and it was heartbreaking mm-hmm. because I knew this was written by a young girl mm-hmm. who had been taught all of these things that one day there would be a Sunday law that would pass and then the close of probation and a law that says that you are free to kill Sabbath keepers. And it details the story of her and her little brother running away into the mountains, being chased and hunted by the authorities so that they could kill them because they keep the Sabbath. And it made me think of what happened at Camp El Sable when those children were given their last Sabbath activity. I believe that was 2011. Yes. They had stations where they had to go to and they had to practice being persecuted for Sabbath keeping and they had to stand up for the Sabbath. And there were photos circulating. We got our hands on some of those. They've been taken down. They're Mm -hmm. hard to find now. But there were children on their knees with guns pointed at their heads. Children. Yeah. Now, to their credit, there were Adventist families who were very upset that this happened. Yeah. But it happens. 
at an Adventist summer camp. Yes. In Michigan. Mm-hmm. And it happens in schools, academies. Yeah. And it's happened in camps. I, I know this because when this came out, many former Adventists gathered together online and started sharing their stories of being traumatized by these activities where right. soldiers, mock soldiers, would storm the church on a Sabbath morning and the people would be led to believe that this law had been passed. I mean, this is terrorism. Yes, it is. It's mental illness. Yeah. It's abuse. And like you said earlier, this is sin against you. Yes, it is. You've been transgressed against by being taught these things and by being made to live through role-playing and fearful teaching and fearful stories of end times that have no basis in Scripture, only in the rantings of a false prophet teaching doctrines of demons. This is sin, and you've been transgressed against. And I want to say, I know that if you have been Adventist, the trauma varies from location to location and person to person, but I know absolutely that you have been traumatized to some degree. You've been led to believe that the Bible teaches something it does not teach. Adventism has used Scripture, God's eternal living Word, to deceive you into thinking it's telling you something that is condemning you. The truth is, Jesus is God. Jesus is eternal. Jesus came and took human flesh, but never gave up one hint of his attributes of deity. He was fully deity in the flesh. And he lived a sinless life, not because he managed to avoid sin by keeping the law. He lived a sinless life because he was sinless. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He had life from the moment of conception, and he lived as a man. He died a sinless, perfect life. He shed his perfect, sinless human blood for your sin and mine. He went to the grave. He lay there dead, and God raised him from the dead. He came to life by his own power, and the Spirit raised him from the dead on the third day. And when we trust that and believe that he paid for our sin, we have his resurrection life given to us, and we are made new, brought to life, born again, and adopted by the Father. And if you have never understood that, if you've never understood that the Sabbath has nothing to do with your salvation, you need to understand that the Lord Jesus has fulfilled everything the Sabbath represented to the Jews, and He is your life. Trust Him. If you have questions or comments for us, please write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com to view past articles and sign up for weekly emails with new online articles delivered straight to your inbox. Don't forget to follow us and like us on Facebook and Instagram, and please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And join us next week as we look at fundamental belief number 21 on stewardship. (laughs) We'll see you then.